90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good. How's it going up in the great frozen north? It's not so frozen. <laughs> it's it's still pretty warm. Uh, actually, I've been playing around a lot with, on Prime Day, I got one of those FLIR 1 cameras, you know, the, the infrared cameras that attach to your phone and let you do, like, the, the IR images and videos of things. Oh, my goodness. Uh-huh. So I've been running around like crazy, you know, after rainstorms, seeing how much the concrete's <laughs> cooled and... All kinds of fun stuff. Uh, this is where you're missing out on having a house full of cats because that would be really funny to do at nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. I can see where the studs are in the outside walls of the building. Oh. I can see what keys on my keyboard I hit most because they're warmer <gasps> than the others. Like, it's it's really fun. Wow, that's really weird. I never would have I never would have thought about that. Hmm. Hmm. So I basically just been pointing it at everything. Oh, wonderful. Well, I did say that I thought about you today because I had a meeting talking about doing a documentary for some of the research that um, a colleague and I are doing out in Colorado. And there was a significant talk about drones and putting cameras on drones. And Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they said, those are really hard to fly. We, we're not experienced enough to do that. <laughs> If only you knew someone. I know. That's what I thought. I was like, drones. Yeah. Nothing's ringing a bell. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we'll see. We'll see how that works out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that kind of, I mean, an unplanned segue into today's topic, right? Because um, I know that you've done some weather soundings with drones, which is not how it's traditionally done. Yeah. So we affix some sensors to the drones and run them up and down. Of course, within the legal limits, so we're all limited to about 100 meters normally. Right. Uh, and measure temperature, pressure, dew point as we go up in the atmosphere. And that's really interesting for local thunderstorm environment questions. But what I thought would be fun to talk about today are weather balloons, kind of the more traditional way of getting upper air data and why that's important. Um, this makes me think that maybe you're planning some kind of secret balloon barn or something um because this is our <laughs> second balloon short right <laughs> cameras to balloons now weather uh you know radio songs tied on to balloons but i'm sure you never know what's coming exactly next. i'm sure you will reveal that in the future <laughs> um <laughs> but weather balloons are really cool i don't know how many people actually get a chance to either see them launched or see them flying around but there are a lot of them out there yeah so they're actually a about 800 locations that regularly launch weather balloons around the globe. Wow. And that's like every day. And that's every day, generally twice a day. Right. Now, not all of the locations do twice a day. Is that true? No, definitely not. Right. But if you think about it, so say that you wanted to have a weather balloon launch every one degree latitude and longitude. So a relatively dense covering of the globe. Mm-hmm. That's 64,800 points. <laughs> That's always mind-blowing when you actually put numbers to that. Because you think just, you know, being in the weather business or having been in the weather business, you're like, okay, this is pretty good. We have all these balloon, you know, information, which we're going to talk about. And it looks pretty good in terms of distribution. But no, yeah, we would need something like that to adequately talk about the atmosphere. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. 
No, I mean, in fact, it's hard to keep sounding stations open because you think about it, you're taking a several hundred dollar minimum piece of equipment, tying it onto a balloon and chucking it into the atmosphere, probably to never see it again twice a day. Uh, um, that's really, uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, how long have these been going on? Do you know? Uh, they've been systematically done since the 30s, I believe. Oh, nice. Okay. But, of course, the technology has changed a lot. Uh, yes. Yeah, I guess we shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves, because there are some people that might not know even what a sounding is or what the stuff attached to a weather balloon is. Right. So the the very first upper air observations, which is what we're going to call you know, above surface observations. We have surface weather stations all over, but they don't really tell us the whole story. Exactly. So upper air observations started uh, around 1749. Uh And this is using my other favorite thing, kites. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) To carry thermometers up into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So it's a very analog system. Right. And definitely not very upper air either. No. (laughs) And then as... You know, the, uh, the human-based balloons came around based on hot air and even hydrogen. Uh, pushing into the 1800s, people would get in them and take barometers, <laughs> thermometers, hygrometers along with them. And they would make soundings by, as the balloon went up, they would swing these instruments and get a reading and write it down. Oh, so undergrads back in the 1800s were having to do this. <laughs> That's excellent. That would be a great job. But as you can imagine, if you're in a balloon in the 1800s, once you get very high, you're going to experience issues. Yes. Yes, Put on the mask for the person or for yourself before you put on the mask for the person (laughs) next to you, right? So uh, actually, several people died trying to do this with inadequate breathing equipment uh, in about 1875. Oh, my gosh. That is... um... That's super surprising. And, I mean, when you say this, it looks like um, they've gotten up to about 11 kilometers high. This is not, you know, that is upper air observations. <laughs> yes. That's, that's not a kite. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, that's impressive. I, I guess I didn't really even realize that it was from that that long ago. But, hmm. Yeah. So, eventually we came into a little bit more modern era in the 1900s, early 1900s, using these things called meteorographs. Okay. All right. Do these look anything like stuff we use today? No. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) These were these giant clockwork-driven devices that had drums of paper, kind of like the old old seismic recorders. (laughs) And you would suspend these beneath kites or balloons. They would go up. They would scratch traces on the paper of the temperature, pressure, and humidity. And then you hoped that you could find them. Oh, wow. So this is... For all of you uh, younger kids listening, you know, this is pre-GPS, so it's not like you could just track it. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> this was, uh, they, they did try tethering some, but it, mm. you're pretty limited right. when you tether as to how high you can go. Right. Because generally we want to get up, you know, relatively high, tens of kilometers. Right, because the whole point is to get a really good... Uh, feel for where the weather is happening and forming way up there and how that's going to affect, you know, what we're going to actually experience at the surface. So the higher you can get, the better, because then you have a more accurate picture of the atmospheric processes. 
Right. And the atmosphere changes pretty rapidly. I mean, you yes. know, we said we launch twice a day. Sometimes during severe weather uh, scenarios, they'll launch an extra one at a few stations. Oh, yes. And so being in the meteorologist capital of the world here in Norman, Oklahoma, that's how I can always tell, you know, our meteorologists on TV get very overexcited. So I always check and see if we launch an 18Z sounding. And I know if we launch an 18Z <laughs> sounding, then stuff's going to go down. <laughs> well, but still think about it. You're relying, even in that special case where you launch an 18Z sounding, you're saying that the atmosphere in that six-hour interval <laughs> is going to be represented by one set of measurements in a model. <laughs> That's so true. It's so true. So back back in the old days with these meteorographs, you have the thing that falls out of the sky. You have to go find it. Eventually, you find it. Hopefully, it worked. You pull the paper off and you <laughs> digitize, quote, the data. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which, by hand yep. there's no way that it's a viable forecasting tool mm -mm. nope and plus there's not a lot of dissemination of that data back then right whereas now most of the data is actually disseminated worldwide through a set of international agreements right and i mean virtually instantaneously um I still remember back in the day, these weather balloons stuff would go up and then you'd get sort of these incoming, <laughs> these incoming information on like a little fax machine that's set in your weather office. <laughs> yeah. So. Yep. The teletypes. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, and then if you ran out of, you know, if you ran out of paper or anything and forgot to change it, then you lose all that data. And so, yep. It's definitely more, yeah. uh, more convenient now. Well, the data format is still pretty teletype-like, yes. but we'll get to that in a little bit. <laughs> that is very true. Some things don't change. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> so anyway. So, so anyway, we, we go up through the 20s and 30s. People are starting to experiment with radios and starting to try to radio data back. Uh, as you can imagine, it's still not a really reliable mechanism. But the Weather Bureau, the precursor to the Weather Service, mm -hmm. actually started tracking small balloons that are called pilot balloons without any sensors okay. to take upper air wind measurements as early as 1909. Oh, so they're sitting there tracking the position of them to figure out upper air flow? Is that the point? That's the point. So these were bright red balloons <laughs> and they were calibrated to you inflate them to a certain size with helium or hydrogen and they give you the correct ascent rate and then you would time well you can time how long it takes it to disappear into the bottom of the clouds that gives you the cloud base height and then you use a theodolite and wow. call out azimuth and elevation readings oh, that... as it ascends to try to get wind estimates oh that is interesting <laughs> so if you think about it, if you're if you're a meteorologist and you're familiar with the hodograph mm -hmm which is a really weird polar oh. coordinate plot of wind. It's awful, yes. If you were to look down from very high in the atmosphere and watch the path of this red balloon as it ascended, that is a hodograph. Tracing a hodograph. Man, why didn't they say that in dynamics? Like, why don't you just say that? <laughs> <laughs> wow, 15 years later, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a weird way to look at the data, but that is pretty much what a hodograph is showing you wow that's really interesting um we'll put some links in uh the notes here for any of you sort of weather weenies that aren't familiar with um where you can get this data so you can take a look at it for yourself yes absolutely mm -hmm. and 
all of the words are spelled as horrifically as they sound. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, <So>. they are. <laughs> um, all right. That's really cool. But when do we get to, you know, something that looks more familiar to those of us who have seen these things? Uh, well, this is the 60s and 70s. Oh, are okay. When we start getting early uh, computer data analysis mm-hmm. of... So I guess before we go into really how the computer data analysis works, we should break down the weather balloon stack. Right. Yes. Because it's what not actually just a, goes up into the air. Right. It's not just a balloon. It's got this no. cool little instrument attached called a radio sonde. Right. And so you've got the balloon, then there's a piece of relatively long tether, and then there's a parachute, and then there's another piece of long tether, and then there's the radio sonde. Okay. So technically, if you're also getting wind... From the instrument, it's a raw and sound. Ah, oh, interesting. I don't think I, I'd heard both of those things, but never understood the difference between them. The original idea was it's radar wind sound, so ah. you could ping it with a radar and track it, and once again get its position in wind. Ah. Now we use GPS. Right, exactly. Thanks, GPS. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but so the reason that you've got this long tether is actually really cool. Did anybody ever explain that? Uh, no. Mm-mm. I've never really realized why. Yeah, so I asked someone about it when they were launching, because mm-hmm. if you've seen a weather balloon launch, it's this really uh, <laughs> difficult process yes. of trying not to have the balloon hit things and pop, and you've got this probably at least 50-foot-long tether mm-hmm. And you don't want things to get tangled. The reason you do that is because the balloon, as it ascends, disturbs the air behind it. Ah, and the expansion of the balloon and the drag of the air along the side of the balloon actually creates local heating. That does not surprise me, but I never really thought about it. That's pretty cool. So you want to get way below the balloon to be away from all these effects. Right, because that little box is the thing that's taking all the measurements. Right. And these balloons get huge when they get into the upper atmosphere. I mean, really big. They expand over five times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> their launch size. And they're, they're big to begin with. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> that's kind of the stack. But at the bottom of the stack, the radio sound, the raw sound, whatever you want to call it, uh, it has recently become something that's about the size of, I don't know, what would you say... One of the larger milk cartons in the grocery store. Right, exactly. It's got some stuff sticking out of it, but yeah, it's much smaller than it used to be. Yes, <laughs> and they used to have water-activated batteries. I don't believe that's the case anymore, because you would rip this panel off the side and soak it in a water bath for three minutes to turn the battery on. Right, <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> and I will say, too, that um, sort of the older ones, there were little signs on them, too, because people find these things, right? They come down eventually. Mm-hmm. And so the little signs were also, some of them I saw were written in Comic Sans. Oh. <laughs> I knew you'd love that, but I digress. But yes, they do have something that says, this is a harmless weather instrument, yes. is how it always starts. <laughs> exactly. Because, I mean, as you can expect, we send out a lot of these a year, and if you can reuse anything and save money, well, that saves the taxpayers money, because obviously the weather service is, you know, a government agency. Yes, and I, I couldn't find a reference for this, but I believe that I've heard in the past that it's something like a 10% return rate on these. That actually surprises me. I would have thought it would be much lower than that. 
Yeah. I mean, and, and sometimes weird things happen. I've heard stories about weather service offices launching them, and they actually ended up landing on the roof of the building yes. they were launched from. <laughs> I think you can say something about the wind without having a... Uh... Without having a, an actual <laughs> yeah. wind measurement taken in that case. <laughs> and I've also heard other crazy stories about them landing on various things. But the parachute is there to make sure their descent rate is not uh, catastrophic or alarming. <laughs> right, exactly. And these aren't very heavy now either, though. No. Yeah. Not that it's not going to hurt you when it falls from that, but you know. <laughs> right. I haven't heard of any anecdotal evidence of that happening. Uh, I haven't either, actually. <laughs> so that's uh, good. <laughs> and these things are cruising on the way up, but the actual entire sounding can still take over an hour. But they shoot for an ascension rate of about 1,000 feet per minute. How? So that is pretty fast. Um, how high do they get, generally? Do you, do you know in, in general? 30, 35 kilometers is a pretty good ballpark number for where they're going to pop. Okay. Uh, they occasionally get up to 40 kilometers, which is about 25 miles. Right. And so now this one, we can say that in some really big thunderstorms, you can have, you know, what we call overshooting tops that make it up to that level. So even then, we still not totally sampling all the atmosphere you might need to in a big storm environment. Right. And, I mean, there are ways to get higher. Right, but this isn't balloons. This is something else that I know that you're also obsessed with, right? It's not balloons, but they do have sounding rockets. <laughs> oh, that sounds fun. As you can imagine, the regulations are horrendous. <laughs> yeah, you think? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you get you get your data back a lot faster. That's good. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, actually, on those, I would assume though that's a dangerous thing to do, that you <laughs> rock it up and then you take parachute down and take the readings on the way down. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's that would true. seem like the logical way. It, to do it would, because if you're worried about interference, it seems like that wouldn't work you very know, well. Rocket engine. <laughs> exactly. I mean I uh. guess I guess it perturbs <laughs> the the air, I guess. Um <laughs> it was really neat back in the day getting to go into a weather service office and number one, watch them launch the balloon. Because as you said, sometimes it's gets kind of comical. Um, because these things are really big. <laughs> and I uh -huh. I feel like they always send the smallest person out to do it just for funsies. <laughs> well in really high wind days, mm -hmm. it's always fun to watch them launch it and just bite their nails to see if it's going to clear the building across the street. Right, exactly. Like, I know ours were launched in this big, um, in a big field, so it was less of that, but there was a lot of traffic nearby, so that was always um, scary, too. Yes. And so we keep saying these are launched uh, twice a day, but we didn't say when. So here in the U.S., it's 0Z and 12Z. Is that how it is all over the world? Do you know? That is pretty much standardized at okay. all of the WMO stations. Okay, that's what I figured. And they launch them about 45 minutes before that mm -hmm. so because they want to have the data for the part of the atmosphere that matters, in quotes, right. uh, to go into the 0 and 12Z numerical weather prediction models. Model runs, yep. Okay. Yep, that makes a lot of sense then. Um and how many how many stations do this extra launch? Do you know that by any chance? Or is it just, I mean, it seems like a regular thing that we have three launches here just because we have such, you know, crazy severe weather. But it's like, do they do any 18Z soundings up where you are? 
I have not seen one. I would assume that in a really bad winter weather scenario, you might get one. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I don't think it's very common. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are 92 sounding locations in the U.S. Okay. Total. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I've seen 18Z launches from more than a handful of those. Right. Yeah. I obviously focus on these ones down here, which I'm sure most people do when they're looking for severe weather. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, and so there are several uses of this data. We already said numerical weather prediction models, for one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also... You can just look at this and determine things like how much available energy is there. It's called CAPE, Convective Available Potential Energy, for thunderstorms to consume. How much convective inhibition is there that's trying to prevent thunderstorms from happening? So it can be a really good, quick diagnosis of the state of the atmosphere. Oh, exactly. I mean, you even see... Now, I remember in in intro meteorology class how trying to read the graphical output from a weather balloon is actually quite difficult for someone that has never seen anything like this and, uh, <laughs> i mean they already... it's quite difficult for everybody well, I yeah think. That, yeah that is absolutely true because it's this weird thing called like a skew t log p diagram and it has so much data on it it's it's actually quite cool and you can use it to even do stuff not even just talking about storms but do stuff like say where's the cloud base going to be which is obviously important in aviation weather forecasting and things like that and there's a whole manual that the air force put out on interpreting skew t log p's i have a paper copy of it here oh and awesome. <laughs> uh it's really cool because you think about it, you're the air force you're really concerned about are my planes going to leave contrails that tell the enemy where to shoot something that you would not think about in your everyday life (laughs) right so they launch weather balloons i mean they have field stations Mm -hmm. uh, like severe storm researchers do where they can launch weather balloons on site that really drove a lot of innovation in fact it was done during the vietnam war quite a bit right yeah Uh, so these balloons would go up and they transmit temperature pressure relative humidity and now their GPS position every right. second. Okay. That's an incredible amount of data. Well, and here's where <laughs> I have a little bit of a problem with the way we do that data. Uh-oh. <laughs> Is it plotted in Excel? Is that why you hate it? <laughs> no. So <laughs> all of that data comes back. Generally, we are edit out anything near the surface. That's what they call super adiabatic, if that means anything to you. Right. Uh, Generally, it's very near surface stuff that we think, well, it's not really that important. That's why we have surface observations. Okay. And then they edit the data down to what they call significant levels. Uh, so you have so all this data, but you're just sampling it, basically? You, you subsample it to a set of fixed levels and then levels in between where there are significant changes based on some criteria that I couldn't find. Isn't computing getting cheap? Like, why do we have to do that? Exactly. That's... That's the problem. <laughs> wow. That... I had no idea. I mean, okay, so a little bit of quick math here. The balloon is ascending at 1,000 feet a minute, and you're going to read a reading 60 times right. a minute. So that's a reading every 16 and two-thirds foot. Which is... We don't have near that. If you look... <laughs> if you get a weather balloon raw data set, you're probably looking at maybe 50 data rows that is unbelievable i had no idea 
Yeah, and so I am curious. In, in days of old, right, you did mm-hmm. have to send this across a teletype machine. Right, yeah, exactly. So, so having tabular data formatting, text formatting, <laughs> and limited data is important. Right, but now why but that's would we gone. do this? Yeah, why would we do that? I guess it just speaks to the behemoth slowness of the government, I guess, in terms of actually changing this but it seems like that's something that we should definitely take advantage of because how are we going to get better because i mean 16 feet okay but that's really still not a lot i mean it is a lot but you know what i mean I'm, that could be a big difference between stuff yeah and i don't know if the original data is archived anywhere hmm. i do know there's a community of people especially in europe right that have made it a hobby they've written their own software to decode the packets coming down on the radio link, and these people, for their hobby, chase weather balloons and grab all the data on their laptops. <laughs> that makes me super happy. That's pretty funny. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> but you mentioned the SKU-T. We'll put some links into that. It's every thermodynamics student's nightmare. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it is. Boy, that's for uh, sure. I remember doing all of that stuff by hand, having to calculate CAPE and... Oh, yeah. Nightmares. <laughs> I mean, the independent variable is on the y-axis, and it's a log y-axis, and the dependent variable is on the x, but it's skewed at about 30 degrees. Mm-hmm. It's it's strange. It is super strange. Um, once you once you get to, I will say, or I feel at least, like once you get to know it, I feel like there's a lot of information that is visually available to you at just a quick glance. Oh, absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's actually quite amazing. Somebody that knows how to look at a SKU-T can look at it and instantly tell you, like you said, where the cloud base is going to be if there's a lot of uh, potential for severe storms that day, right. what the type of precipitation is going to be. Yeah. Uh, but there are other diagrams. And have you ever had to work with any of those? Um, no, I was looking at your list. And besides seeing them, I've never had to actually work with any. Thank goodness. <laughs> So I actually had to plot one of them by hand. Oh. Once. I had to plot a skew-T by hand, and then I yeah. had to plot a tephagram by hand. I've had to do the skew-T by hand, that's for sure. And then calculate so, everything. But tephagrams I have not had to do. Yeah, so we'll link them in. But they're tephagrams and Stuvi diagrams right. that are just alternate ways to look at this. They each have their advantages and disadvantages. And now, since we don't have to plot them by hand, like they did after getting it off the teletype, hmm. uh, it's really not bad to look at all of them. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. Um, I will say that I still know, and I think this is really great and that everyone should do this, I still know meteorologists that get in a lot of this data and still, you know, make their own maps every once in a while. Not so much the actual weather balloon data, but they take the info from the 92 U.S. locations and actually plot by hand their own maps. And sometimes that's nice to do it gives you a chance to stop and think about the data which in this realm of constant data input we don't do sometimes yeah and it lets you play with you know colored pencils look john those are important (laughs) research tools (laughs) 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 and it lets you color yes that's exactly right yes Excellent. Um, so weather balloons. Are there more than weather balloons out there? Oh, yes. So <laughs> there is the entire NASA balloon program, and there are other high-altitude balloonists that actually take these massive balloons that weigh 
many, many hundreds of pounds, but are thinner than uh, cellophane that you would wrap your food in. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And they use, and these things are massive. I'll put a link with some pictures in. And they'll use them to do things like loft telescopes that weigh <gasps> 2,000 pounds into the atmosphere. So now that's going to hurt coming back down. <laughs> yeah. So these go really high and they're designed to stay aloft for extended periods of time. Okay. Okay. So the goal of them is to get to an equilibrium level mm-hmm. and float there where you're above a lot of the atmosphere and you can do these experiments. Now, calculating the equilibrium level of a balloon, if you've got a certain gas in the balloon and a certain pressure at the surface and so on and so forth, you can do it. It's an, a classic problem in mm-hmm. a thermodynamics test. Oh, yeah. It sounds like it. <laughs> and I actually made a parody video of the old UPS commercials when I was oh, taking yeah. thermodynamics. I <laughs> and uh, I, I will, I'll link it in, but needless to say, that became a question on our, I think it was the final, and I thought I was going to have people throwing bricks through my window because it was a really hard question. And I was credited in the question text on oh, the test. Oh, that is not okay. That is yeah. not okay. That is one time when you do not want credit because thermo is like the weed out class for meteorology and it's painful. <laughs> it, was like, it was my favorite meteorology class probably. Uh, it, was, it was my most entertaining meteorology class too. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was really good. It was all those thermo problems that we've talked about, shooting mm-hmm. guns and airplanes and what happens and all this, so... Yes, I agree. Um, it also, if you search for an image of any of these, especially these high altitude research balloons, you can see why, you know, you attribute UFOs to this stuff because, yeah, you know, it's this weird, huge thing floating in the sky. They're very strange looking. They are. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so exactly. <laughs> and there's even, this isn't really a balloon once again, but there are uh, researchers that are using GPS signal distortion occultations, the fancy word for it, to try to measure upper atmospheric profiles between satellites now. Mm. That's actually interesting because that's somewhere you don't get to. So, huh. Yeah. So those are all those uh, kind of fun ways to measure the upper atmosphere. There are also a lot of people that call themselves near space balloonists. Mm. Mm -hmm. And these are people that get old weather balloons on eBay (laughs) and buy the gas to fill them up, and then they make their own instrument packages to sit below them, and they generally do fun things like take pictures where you you can see, you know, the blackness of space and the curvature of the Earth. Uh, They always put some meteorological sensors on just because, and sometimes they put other fun sensors like radiation, cosmic rays, etc. Or they tie little toys to them and, you know, take pictures of the toys up in space. Right. <laughs> of course, there's a Raspberry Pi-based flight computer that's called Pi in the Sky. Of course and, there is. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people that do this. And there's a column on it in Nuts and Volts magazine as well every month. Oh, nice. Uh, called Near Space. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So if you need something to do, uh, there you go. <laughs> oh, man, that's really great. Well, you can get anything on eBay, can't you? It's really true. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I've bought a geophysical magnetometer on eBay. <laughs> um, 
Of course. Several you know. weird things. <laughs> a bunch of out of production semiconductors. Yep. So mm-hmm. pretty much anything. Yep. Yep. We've bought uh, filters for stream tables. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> whatever you can get. <laughs> well, excellent. Uh, we'll put we'll put the uh, Weird Al eBay link. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> in the show notes as well. Um, I will say that uh, it was somewhat planned, this uh, fun paper that we have coming up, too, since we were talking about the weather. Yes, and now I have to ask one more time, did you get the cowbell? Oh, I, I didn't get the cowbell. I'm not going to school. I don't want to go back to school, John. I don't want to go back to my office. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will I will edit in. We had a listener, uh, Jenna, so thank you, that sent in a free-to-use cowbell recording. I mean, that's not the same thing, though. <laughs> uh, I, I have the next second best thing, so you go ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> that's not a sleigh bell. It's a bear bell. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> I have a deathly fear of bears, and I have a lot of hiking bear bells, so, you know, it's next best thing. (laughs) (laughs) So this fun paper is also about the atmosphere, but not our atmosphere. Um, And this was found in uh, Nature Letters, and it is the heating of Jupiter's upper atmosphere above the Great Red Spot, and it's by uh, Donahue et al. And I will say this was a really cool paper. (laughs) I, as soon as I read the intro, it wasn't what I had planned for today, I will say that, but as soon as I read the little abstract, I knew you were going to be so excited about this paper that we had to do it. (laughs) Yeah, this hits a lot of the checkboxes for me. (laughs) That's what I figured. Uh, That is exactly what I figured. Um, So it's, it's exactly that. It's not like... Not like last week's where the title gave no indication as to what the paper was about, but um, (laughs) (laughs) it it seems like an obvious title, but the problem is like Jupiter's great red spot is really hot and we've never been able to figure out why. Right. And I mean, really the mid latitudes themselves are way above what they should be based on solar radiation. Right. And so we thought that there was a really big sort of disconnect between the levels of the atmosphere on Jupiter, just because it's so big and there's, no reason why it should be that hot. Well, no reason that we had known yet. Right. And there were lots of theories. There's ideas about auroral heat being transported equatorward. Right. But that doesn't work because of strong Coriolis force because the planet is spinning incredibly fast at the equator because it's large. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it turns out that it actually does have to do with the Great Red Spot. And to solve this, they use NASA's Infrared Telescope facility, which I've actually got to see before. It's in Hawaii. Oh, really? Yes. That makes me super jealous. <laughs> Incredibly jealous. Um, wow. And so they only got a little bit of time on this, which I think is hilarious that, you know, this thing that seems really important, we don't understand why the upper atmosphere is as hot as it is, but they only got nine hours on this infrared telescope facility, right? That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, telescope time is precious. It is. That's unbelievable. We should make a lot of money and build our own and then sell that, I think. 
Oh, there you go. Yeah. So <laughs> they, they used a spectrometer and they measured infrared radiation levels at different places on the planet. And lo and behold, the Great Red Spot was hot. They said that this was actually the first study of this since, I believe it was in the 90s. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the 90s, they had a resolution that was over 9,000 kilometers per pixel. Wow. And now they're down to 500 per pixel. Oh, that's unbelievable. (laughs) Which 500 kilometers is still, I mean, that's a little less than five degrees latitude or longitude on Earth. On Earth, yeah. But when you think about the scope of Jupiter, yeah, it's not too bad. So (laughs) they actually said in here that one of the ideas that they had that had been hard to confirm was this acoustic heating. And they actually had some citations that said, we've observed heat uh, in the thermosphere derived from thunderstorms and the acoustic waves produced from them. Right. That's here on Earth. That's here on Earth. Right. I did not know that, and I want to read those papers now. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that that would, uh, that that would um, pique your interest for sure. Um, because, you know, what is the Great Red Spot? It's the biggest storm in the solar system. Right. And so now they're thinking that maybe some of this heating could be due to that. It seems like it's a little more complicated than that, though. It does. And I I think the way I read this, that what the astronomers call acoustic waves in meteorology, we would call gravity waves. Right. Is that what you got? That is what I got as well. Well, that's what I'd hoped. I mean, that you would come to that same conclusion. That's the conclusion I came to, especially when they describe them. It's like, yeah, OK, gravity wave stuff. Gotcha. And these are not like LIGO gravity waves. These are right. what a physicist would call buoyancy waves. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have a stratified atmosphere where everything's stable mm-hmm. and you perturb it, it is going to have this ringing effect, oscillating effect, and you'll get a propagating wave at the boundary. Right. And so that can work to heat up that atmosphere, especially when you have a perturbation as big as the Great Red Spot. Right, because if you think about it, you're moving air past each other. So just like with the balloon, viscous forces and turbulence heat up the atmosphere. And there are ways to calculate this. In fact, we both had an entire class on it. (laughs) I try to block this out of my memory. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But that's absolutely true. Um, So, like, why do we care? Why does this seem like it's a cool thing? Well, number one, gravity waves heating up the atmosphere, not something you normally think about. Um, And number two is that we just don't have a good feel for the coupling of the atmosphere on especially these big gaseous planets and you know why does that matter well we talk about you know the surface and then the upper air and how they interact is what causes our weather and then therefore has climate implications and things like this and so if they're not speaking to each other so if they're not coupled vertically Or if they are coupled vertically, it has drastic implications for how the entire atmospheric processes work. So we thought that it wasn't really coupled on these big gaseous planets, but this may say something different now. Yeah, and we're not talking about light coupling here either. We're talking about this being responsible for 600 Kelvin. That's a lot. Temperature change. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a whole lot. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even even on Jupiter, that's a lot. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's... really interesting because we just didn't think that this kind of thing happened and they've gone back and reanalyzed you know some of the Galileo data and they're working on some models to talk about you know the hydrogen in the atmosphere 
and these perturbations and does it actually explain all this high temperature region you know both above the great red spot and then also this gradient that we see uh latitudinally right and apparently this has been such a long-standing problem like everything it gets a catchy name <laughs> it does called <laughs> the giant planet energy crisis i thought this was great <laughs> Uh, I had no idea that that was a thing. I mean, I guess I knew a little bit about how does it get so hot? We don't know. But yes, the energy crisis. That's beautiful. Well, and it is interesting because everybody, right, we're all in our own little research sub bubble of a sub bubble. Yeah. And something that seems huge and obvious to us, it's easy to forget that 99% of the population doesn't even know that that problem exists. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> which is sort of the sad thing about there being so many scientists around is because, you know, exactly, this is stuff that you would have heard from before, and now you never knew it existed in this other discipline. Right. Yeah. So that's... That's why we do Fun Paper Friday, right? Uh, exactly. And sometimes they dovetail and make perfect sense together, like this week's, and sometimes they don't. It's true, like last week's. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> Bear bells, cowbells, human evolution. So, <laughs> before we sign off, uh, I did get a piece of feedback, along with uh, one of the Limerick su submissions that we've got. There have been many excellent ones so far. Uh, <laughs> but somebody said that they really enjoyed our show, and they don't mind when our summer shorts aren't so short. They're just as long as the rest. <laughs> well, thank God, because this week's is also not a summer short. <laughs> no. So <laughs> We should talk about meteorology more often. We obviously got very excited about today's topic. Uh, we obviously did. But... <laughs> We do have that limerick contest going. So, mm -hmm. Shannon, do you want to remind them of what to do? Uh, please send us your limericks. Um, August 12th is the deadline date, and it's not just us. So as much as I enjoyed the grapple limerick, <laughs> it's also Dr. <laughs> Katie Shearer, who is an English professor, who is also helping to um, judge the worthy limericks. And the prize is from Chris at Taylor Custom, and you have to go look at these things. They're amazing. He creates these really cool geoscience themed and he has a lot of paleontology stuff too uh keychains and other things that are just amazing so we will be giving some of those away and after hearing me talk about alvin on the show where i was talking about my trip to woods hole he actually sent me a metal casting of alvin that is on my keychain right now it's uh -huh. wonderful that is spectacular that is so cool um i definitely have pointed to this website for upcoming christmas shopping so Yes. And to help inspire you, like, as I said, we've already got quite a few submissions, but you know, I, I think we've got room for plenty more. Yes. So uh, I have made an example limerick that, that I did this in you know just a couple minutes before we put the show together, but something to help inspire you. <laughs> and of course, it's earthquake related. Obviously. So here we go. <laughs> the stress the fault is feeling. Built up by plates never healing. Energy release is due. Too much strain cannot accrue. The rock will soon be yielding. Gosh. <laughs> That's beautiful. So there you go. It's just that simple. Pick your favorite geotopic and write a little limerick. And if you want to talk to us even more than the ways that we normally say at the end of the show... There is a dedicated Slack channel in the Software Underground group now. 
Yes, uh, we'll be providing a link to that, right? So you can come join that and uh, nerd out with us any time of the day we're um, on our computers. Yeah, there's a lot of folks that hang around in all of the different channels on that particular group. It swung as Software Underground, and it's uh, also the home to the Undersampled radio channel. So if you haven't listened to them, you should definitely go check them out. Yes, absolutely. And we've already gotten a limerick submitted to us via Slack. So get on over there and read it. It's pretty great. There you go. And you can bounce ideas off people, too. We had some of that happening. It's wonderful. Yep. Great tool. But So, Shannon, how can they send us their wonderful literary works of art? <laughs> exactly. If you're in the steam mood and want to send us that, um, give it to us at show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And like we just said, you can join our Slack channel. Uh, as always, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.